Good morning. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. Aubrey just read to us the parable of the prodigal son. It's the story depicted so beautifully on the front of our worship guide. Did you know that the original painting is actually eight feet tall and six feet wide? So for reference, that's nearly double the size of this first painting on my left. And, uh, and it's roughly the size of those two big wooden doors at the back of the sanctuary. When I told Aubrey about it this week, he used the word life-size. And uh, that's a really good way to think about it. This painting is just massive. It's enveloping. Not exactly something you could get away with, you know, hanging in your bedroom or in your living room or something like that. Why? Why did Rembrandt choose to make this painting so big? And there are probably several answers. But the one I find most compelling is that the size of the painting actually points us to the meaning of the parable. This parable is about the immense love of a forgiving God. That, I believe, is what Rembrandt is trying to communicate. This God's love is so big, so great, so vast, that you have to see it to believe it. And like the Grand Canyon, it's only when you experience it for yourself that you begin to realize just how much you've underestimated it. So let's see that this morning. Let's see for ourselves God's amazing love for us as expressed uh, through this beautiful parable. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Now, all of Luke chapter 15 is spoken as an answer to the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 2, that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And it's worth zooming in on that word receives because in the Greek, it means far more than just accepting or tolerating. It actually means to eagerly await or expect and look for. There's an earlier story in Luke about an old man named Simeon. And Luke tells us he was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. Same word. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his followers to be like men who are eagerly awaiting the return of the master from the wedding feast. Again, same word. In other words, this receiving of sinners isn't just some act of philanthropy that Jesus is doing on the side. No, it's his life project. Jesus is constantly seeking out sinners, the worst in society, tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals, and so on. And not only that, but he keeps throwing these big elaborate dinner parties for them. And so you see how this can be misconstrued. And when the Pharisees start grumbling about this, which, by the way, is the same word used of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert and they got mad at God. 
When the Pharisees start grumbling about this, Jesus tells a series of three parables, all of them having to do with the joy of recovering what was once lost. So you can just make your way down the page here in verses 3 through 7. A shepherd loses one out of a hundred sheep. In verses 8 through 10, a woman loses one out of 10 coins. You're seeing the progression here. It's intensifying. And in verses 11 through 32, a father loses one out of two sons. And this is where we'll be spending our time this morning. Jesus begins in verse 11 by introducing the three main characters. There was a man who had two sons. And we're going to let those three characters guide us through this parable, starting with the younger son, the prodigal son. Now, the fact is that long before turning and returning, uh, this younger son had left. He says to his father in verse 12, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Jesus says it so simply, but in an ancient village society, this would be the equivalent today of telling your dad to his face, I hate you and I wish you were dead. I can't wait for you to die. This was absolutely unheard of. It's incredibly offensive, unspeakable. And when the son leaves for a far country, he's not simply going on a sightseeing adventure. He's making a decisive break with his past. He's had it with all of his father's rules and routines. He's had it with all the ways of of thinking and living and believing and acting that have been handed down to him from generation to generation. And he's not just tired of it. He hates it. He's fed up with it. He thinks it's stupid. He thinks it's ridiculous, backwards, old-fashioned. And so he leaves. He leaves home and he starts a new life his way with his rules and his values. And you know what? Honestly, he has a ton of fun. He gives in to every desire, every impulse. He denies himself no pleasure. The world is his for the taking, and he takes it. He is a god. I was talking recently with an Anglican bishop. He's an incredibly godly man now, but before he turned to Christ, he looked a lot like this younger son, and and he told me, you know, people always say, like in their testimonies and stuff, that their lives were miserable before they became Christians. He said, it's just not true. (laughs) He said, I had a ton of fun drinking and partying and chasing girls until there was a crisis, an ugly breakup, uh, a death in the family, a sports injury, jail. It was only in those darkest moments, he said, when my life felt like it was falling apart and, and I knew that I was on the wrong path. And that's what happens to this younger son. A famine hits. He loses everything. All of his new friends abandon him. He's starving. Starving enough to do slave labor with pigs. 
But even then, he's knocking on death's door and he knows it. Jesus says at the end of verse 16, those last several words, that no one gave him anything. If this son had remained within Jewish society, he could have received alms, like Aubrey talked about. Uh, But he's left all that behind. He's now in a far country, in Gentile country, where almsgiving actually is looked down upon. So one Roman author, Plautus, wrote, He does the beggar a bad service who gives him meat and drink. For what he gives is lost, and the life of the poor is prolonged to their own misery. So it's at this point that the son comes to his senses. And in verse 17, he says to himself, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the best the son could hope for, a minimum punishment, the chance to survive on the condition of hard labor. I know that brand of repentance. I have to fess up and and take what's coming to me. I have to accept my lashes like a champ and bear the guilt and shame of coming back to a God I've abandoned. In this scenario, God remains a harsh judge and And I remain his slave. There's no freedom in this. But the bitterness and the resentment keep compounding. You know, one of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness. There's something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and and prevents us from letting God erase our past. And offer us a completely new beginning. It's almost like I want to prove to God that my darkness is too great to overcome. God wants to restore me to the full dignity of being a son. But I keep insisting on being a hired servant. The question we have to ask ourselves is do I really want to be restored To the full responsibility of the son. Do I truly want to be so totally forgiven. That a completely new way of living becomes even remotely possible. Do I want to break away. From my deep rooted rebellion. Against God. And surrender myself so absolutely. That a new person can emerge. Receiving forgiveness requires a total willingness to let God be God and do all the healing, all the restoring, all the renewing. As long as I want to do even a part of that myself, I end up with partial solutions, like becoming a hired servant. I can still keep my distance, still revolt and reject and strike and run away and complain about my pay. But as the beloved son... I have to claim my full dignity. I have to become childlike. So the younger son prepares this speech and and starts the journey home. And now 
the parable shifts the spotlight to the father. Look with me at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Now, remember, I believe I said this a couple weeks ago. In Luke's gospel, compassion is way more than just an emotion. It's actually a physiological reaction to human suffering. It's a turning of the stomach. It's a lump in the throat. It's this powerful combination of love and pity radiating throughout your entire body. It's something that can't possibly be hidden or contained. That's what this father experiences. He's overcome with compassion. And what does he do? He runs. Literally, he races. And if you've never seen a decrepit old man run in a full-length dress, (laughs) you'll know that it's not exactly flattering. It's a total loss of dignity, even in a culture where where the men do wear dresses. Old men don't run. It's not honorable. It's not appropriate. But this father runs to his son. And when he finally reaches him, he immediately embraces him and he kisses him. And the son sticks to his pathetic script. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off. He doesn't finish. The father doesn't even give him a chance to fully apologize. You know what he says? Uh, The the ESV version that many of you might be reading that, that I've read, it says in verse 22, bring quickly. But that's too weak. The first word in the Greek is simply quick. I love that. It's this term that a doctor would use in the emergency room. Quick. Quick, bring the best robe. Now, whose robe would that be? The father's robe. Quick, put a ring on his hand, a sign of sonship, and shoes on his feet, a sign of wealth. Kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate. This is amazing. You know, some of you grew up with a father who acted nothing like this. Your father was staunch and aggressive and at times terrifying, unapproachable. I'm so sorry. You got the wrong picture. This is what a father is like. This is what God is like. Not only does he forgive without asking questions, he can't wait To give us new life. Abundant life. He's almost impatient. So let me put this in a way. A good Anglican can understand. In a few minutes. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And we get to pray together. This beautiful prayer. Of humble access. It's derived. Almost completely from scripture. It's one of the most cherished prayers. In the Anglican tradition. But imagine what it would be like for God to interrupt us during that. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord. Quick! Come to the table. Come to the feast. Can we talk about this later? The food's getting cold. 
God is like this father. He's not angry with you. He's compassionate. He's looking into the distance for you, trying to find you, longing to bring you home. He's more eager to forgive you than you are eager to be forgiven. He's proud of you. He loves you. He throws a banquet for you. Every time you come to your senses and come back to him, he throws a banquet for you. He is a lavishly rich and loving father. And so the party begins. But the story isn't over. Because at every party, there's a party pooper. (laughs) So look at verse 25. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because... He's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother cannot receive this. No, in fact, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. It's a power that had remained deeply hidden, even though it had been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. It was the dark power of a resentful heart. This son had stayed home. This son hadn't wandered off. But do you know what? He was still lost. Even more lost than the younger son, the prodigal son. You know, in a family, it's often the oldest children who who most want to live up to their parents' expectations. We're still waiting for our oldest child to begin doing that. (laughs) They often want to please. They often fear being a disappointment to their parents. But they often also experience pretty early in life a certain envy toward their younger brothers and sisters. Why aren't they as concerned as I am about pleasing mom and dad? Why do they get to do their own thing while I'm over here with my stomach in knots? Some of us have grown up in the church. We were raised in the faith. But all our lives, we've harbored this strange curiosity for the disobedient life. It's a life that we've never dared to live. We've seen others do it. We've watched our friends do it but we've never really had the courage ourselves to run away, to leave home like the younger son did. And what's grown up within us all of these years, although we'd never admit it, has been an ugly resentment, a sense of envy toward people who have walked away, and particularly to people who have come back. All because... We ourselves haven't made our home with the Father. We've lived by the rules, but we've lived in bondage. We haven't yet entered into the joy of our Father's house. 
the older son refuses to celebrate. And the father begs him, pleads with him to join the feast. But in verse 29, he snaps back at him, look. It's another one of these interjections like the word quick. You see how polarized the father and the older son are. Look, these many years I've served you. I'd never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. So a young goat, if you've never had a good birthday party, (laughs) um, feeds a small party, a fattened calf. The whole village is invited. So that I can celebrate with my friends. Apparently the father's not invited. But when this son of yours came, Notice not my brother, but this son of yours. He's distancing himself from his family. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Now this is a really harsh accusation. It's also baseless. How does this older son know what the younger son did? Who said anything about prostitutes? Sure, maybe the younger son did this, but how could the older son possibly know? Could this charge be a projection of his imagination? This is what he would have done in the far country. Does it reveal that his heart was in the far country all along while his body stayed home? And was obedient. But the father responds in verse 31. Son. Literally it's the word child. It's a term of fatherly affection. Child. You are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The rash words of this oldest son are not met with words of judgment. The father does not defend himself or even comment on the older son's behavior. No, the father moves directly beyond all evaluations to stress, to emphasize his intimate relationship with him. You're always with me. All I have is yours. The father loves both of his sons. He wants them both home. And yes, he's throwing a party for the younger. But he wants the older one to sit right beside him and join the feast. And the parable is left open-ended. It's not a fairy tale. There's no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face-to-face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices To trust or not to trust in the immense love of a forgiving God. I think about my own life. Who am I in this story? I'm the only child of my parents, so I guess that makes me the oldest. (laughs) But I also have two older half-brothers, which makes me the youngest. So the birth order gurus would have a a real ball with me. But what I'm trying to say is that it's easy to see ourselves as the prodigal. 
the younger son who acted like a total fool, totally blew it, and came crawling back home. It's also even easier for many of us to identify with the older son, the one who stayed home but got lost in all the rules and got a sense of entitlement and pride and envy. But what about the father? Can we also learn to become like him? A child doesn't remain a child. It must become an adult. Jesus once said, be compassionate as your heavenly father is compassionate. Now, how do we do that? How do we become that? How do we become the father? Three ways. Grief, forgiveness, and generosity. Grief. It might sound strange to think about grief as a way to compassion, but it is. Grief asks me to allow the sins of the world, including my own, to pierce my own heart and make me shed tears for them. The father's heart in this story is a broken heart. It's not an angry heart. It's only a broken heart that can run out to prodigals and embrace them and call them to join the feast. Second, forgiveness. It is through constant forgiveness, constant habitual forgiveness, the practice of it, that we become like the Father. And this is so hard. I've often said, I forgive you. But even as I said it, my heart remained angry. I still wanted to hear the story that tells me I was right after all. I still wanted to hear apologies and excuses. I still wanted the satisfaction of receiving some praise in return, even if that praise means I'm so forgiving. But God's forgiveness is unconditional. And it calls me to keep stepping over all my arguments to say that forgiveness is unwise or unhealthy or unpractical. It challenges me to step over all my needs for gratitude and compliments. Also, I can welcome people back into relationship. Third, generosity. In the parable, the father doesn't just give the son everything he wants at the beginning. He also showers him with gifts when he returns. And to the older son, to the older son also, he says, all I have is yours. There is nothing the father keeps for himself. All that he has, he pours out for his sons. Grief, forgiveness, and generosity. This is what it takes to become the father. But it's also what Jesus gave on his journey to the cross. He allowed the sins of the world to pierce his own heart. When his enemies crucified him, he looked down on them and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in generosity, he poured out his very life, all that he had for you. He did it all so that you would come home. And come to his father's banquet to sit beside him. 
If you're not a child of God this morning, what is stopping you? You've seen in this parable how amazing it is to have this God as a father. Who wouldn't want that? He's rolled out the red carpet for you. He's made a way for you to come into the family. And the way we enter into the family is through baptism. If you have not yet been baptized, please let God do this for you. Let him give you this gift. Let him give your children this gift. We're having baptisms on Easter, April 21st. Come talk to Aubrey or me, please. And let's welcome you into the family. And if you are a child of God this morning, wow, come to the table. That Rembrandt painting, it's huge. It's as wide as this altar and about two feet taller than I am. As you come to the table this morning, imagine that painting as the backdrop. The Father is calling you, begging you, pleading with you to come to the feast. Whoever you are, you are not an orphan. You have a Father, and He's looking for you. And He won't rest until you're home, safe and sound as his beloved son or daughter, feasting around this table with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.